I was always raised that you can fight anything. I can teach almost everything you need to be successful in a job. How to write and how to give a presentation. All this stuff's teachable. There's only one thing in life that you can't teach, and it's the most important thing of all, and that's desire. That's got to come from within. And if you've got desire, I can work with that. I look at my best salespeople ever in my career. They weren't nuclear physicists, but you know what? They never give up and they just fight. And that's what you need. I'm looking for desire. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PG Alumni Podcast. I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. And I'm Andrew Tarvin, humor engineer. Roman and I both got our start at PG, the Procter and Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about. It's kind of like being a fly on the wall for my mentoring coffees. On today's show, we're talking to PG alumni leader James Michael Lafferty, CEO of Fine Hygienic Holding and former executive at Coca Cola and Procter and Gamble. It's a great conversation about the stories and lessons he's learned from his career. Here's a quick bio of James. James Michael Lafferty is the CEO of Fine Hygienic Holding and has often been described as one of the most unique and diversified CEOs in the world today. He is also an Olympic coach, an award-winning journalist, a college professor, a competitive athlete, a philanthropist, loving husband, and father of five. James started his career at Procter & Gamble, raising through the ranks from fitness instructor to an international career that took him to North Africa, Central and Eastern Europe, the Middle East, Western Europe, Africa, and Asia. With a marketing and general management career that spans over 30 years, James is among the leading global experts on business building, marketing, and branding, particularly in emerging markets. He has had a long and successful career building businesses and organizations across five continents for some of the world's leading fast-moving consumer goods companies. James continues to coach professionally as well, including most recently as a coach of the Philippines Olympic athletic team at the 2016 Rio Games, and he remains active as a key part of a healthy lifestyle, having run over 30 full marathons and was recently crowned the 2017 Philippines national champion in powerlifting. Quite an impressive resume. And one of the things that I really appreciated about conversation with Jim is his ability to clearly communicate his message, something that he says that he wasn't always so good at. He shares how he got better in our conversation. Certainly, he shares that. And he also talks about the origins of his infamous swimmers versus water walker memo and why ultimately writing is so important to leadership and to your career. Jim is also a great storyteller, and he shared a few defining moments from his career, including pinching the fat on some PNG brand managers, crying in the Paris airport, and uh, the time one of his managers refused to talk to him. I think you're going to really enjoy not only the stories, but the insight from Jim in our conversation. So let's dive right in with James Michael Lafferty. Today, we're talking to James Michael Lafferty, CEO of Fine Hygienic Holding. James, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Andrew. It's been a long time. It has. And I'm super excited to dive deep into kind of what you've uh, accomplished over your historic uh, career, I think historic in many ways. And so a quick background for people who may not know your, your full professional story. 
You started out as a youth track and field coach before getting recruited at work at Procter & Gamble as a fitness trainer. You then from there got into brand management program and that led to an international career that took you to North Africa, Central and Eastern Europe, Middle East, Western Europe, Africa and Asia. And then after PNG, you continued your career journey as the CEO of Coca-Cola Nigeria and as the CEO of British American Tobacco in the Philippines and as a consultant for HP, Microsoft, General Electric, Walmart, and many, many other Fortune 500 companies, and of course, now CEO of Fine Hygienic Holdings. So I'm curious, my first question is certainly a very impressive career. When you were growing up in Cincinnati as a kid, was that the career you imagined? Like, was that what you thought, yep, yep, this is what I'm going to do? Absolutely not. I mean, Andrew, I'm a big believer in the concept of serendipity, which is you don't know where your life's going to go. I mean, I... All I really wanted to do when I was studying at University of Cincinnati is I love coaching kids. I love track and field. To this day, I had a huge passion for the sport of track and field. And all I wanted to do was teach, coach, and make $25,000 a year. That's all I ever wanted to do. So I think <laughs> my life has gone completely in a different, but albeit better way than I could have ever expected. And that's what I tell young people when I teach in, in university. I say, Everybody in the world has dreams in life. We all have dreams. And when we're young, we have dreams. When we're older, we have dreams. And, and there's three ways a dream can go. You can miss the dream by a mile. So you've got people today who are in prison. I don't think when they were 14 years old, they said, I can't wait to go to prison when I get older. I mean, that wasn't something that they were wanting. And, and through choices that they made, they are in a worse place than they thought. That's group one. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Group two is you have a set of dreams and you don't hit them, but you come close. And so maybe you grow up and you say, I want to work at Procter & Gamble and you don't work for Procter, you work for Lever. And you say, I want to marry that person. Then you don't marry him or her, but you marry someone close. And you say, I want to live in that part of town or in that neighborhood. And you don't exactly live on the street you wanted, but you're, you're in the neighborhood. That's how many people end up. Life doesn't turn out the way they wanted, but it's within the realm. And then there's a third group, which are people like me, which is you have a set of dreams in your life and they're modest and they're humble. And then you blow them completely away and life becomes much more rich than you could have ever imagined and not rich in terms of monetary means, but in terms of experiences in life. And that's how I feel. I feel very blessed and very lucky. And it all comes from the choices that you make throughout the course of your life. Yeah, that I think to many people resonates. It resonates certainly with me. And so part of it becomes like, okay, if there are those three choices, how do I try to make sure that it's those those last ones? So I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, because you somewhat famously started as a fitness instructor at P&G, and then you get into the brand management program, and then you end up a senior executive there. Not the normal career path, right? It's not the like, oh, came out as an MBA and high level straight into ABM or whatever. So I'm curious, how did that transition happen? How do you go from helping people get healthy to then saying, okay, now I'm going to help make the business healthier? Well, I owe a lot to a, a former brand manager at P&G named Tom Schramm. He had signed up for one of the programs we offered P&G, which was called Lifestyle Assessment. And what we did is we, we assessed your diet and your exercise and elements of your lifestyle. And then we wrote what was called a lifestyle prescription. And I was doing that program for P&G. And it cost, it was being offered through the US through FlexComp. And it was a $100 value. So they these people would pay $100, $100 and then there was six, eight, 10 hours of one-on-one -on -one consultation and testing. And I had Tom in the program 
And one of the things we did is we measured their body fat. And back then, the most accurate technique was a technique called hydrostatic weighing, where you weigh people underwater. And since lean body mass sinks and fat floats, you can you can do an easy mathematical calculation and, and figure out body fat. Now, that's a, a quite invasive procedure. You need equipment. You need to put them underwater. You need tanks. And so, so we didn't do that. We did skinfold calipers, which are still used. And what I would do is be in this little private room and these P&G executives would come in in their shirt and tie, you know, very, I was 21 years old and they were very, I'm a big businessman at P&G. And then I would have to strip them down to their, their boxer shorts and pinch their fat. And you find out when you take people's clothes down to their boxers, uh, the, suddenly the emperor has no clothes. And these people would kind of mumble and make small talk because they were so nervous because now they're going to find out how fat they are. And Tom was kind of rambling on about different things. And he made this comment to me, I'm pinching the fat on his thigh. I can still see it. And he says, you ought to do what I do. And I said, what do you do? And he said, I'm in brand management. And I said, what the heck is brand management? I had no idea. And so he explains it to me and it sounds really cool. And, and, he, and he says to me, I've get, I'm getting to know you. You're perfect for this. And I thought it was, a, as I reflect on this now, 37 years later, I realized that it's a wonderful gift that he gave me because I had no idea what was out there in the world. I was a psych and physiology major in college. I didn't know about business stuff. And he, he being a former U.S. Naval officer and a P&G executive, he had seen the world. And he sees this young guy and he says, the guy doesn't know what he wants, but I know what he would be good at. And he felt I would be very good in brand. So he set up some interviews and I took the tests. And and as many people know, I got into a full panel interview in PNG. I made it through all the tests. But then I apparently didn't pass that interview and they sent me a ding letter. And Tom didn't really know what to do. Nobody knew what to do. So I wrote a letter to, to Sam Pruitt, the head of HR in the company at the time in 1985. And I sent him this steaming letter. I was raised in a family where you could do anything in life. You could become president of the U.S. if you want. I write to him and I say, Mr. Pruitt, interviewing is not a science, it's an art, and your artists suck, and I want another chance. And they were so stunned at P&G at that time, that the, this brash kid, they gave me another set of interviews, and they decided to have me interview in food service and lodging products, which was a more entrepreneurial, offbeat part of the company. It wasn't, I had previously been in packaged soap and detergents, which is the motherland of P&G, Tide and Downey and all this stuff. So I interviewed in, in Flop and Slop, which is what they called it back then. And <laughs> and lo and behold, they made me an offer. And then I had a bunch of people that I was working with in Cincinnati in the fitness world said, you're out of your mind if you turn us down. I'd already accepted a job to go to New Orleans to run a big fitness center down there. And I changed my mind and I stayed in Cincinnati and I went to P&G as a brand assistant and I walked in and my boss was from University of Chicago, MBA, Tom Hanley. ABM1 was Mike Halloran, who had been at MIT Sloan School of Business, MBA. And the, the other ABM was a guy named Doug Baker, who just retired from Ecolab as CEO. And Baker didn't have his MBA, but he had a pretty rich experience and went to Holy Cross. And here I am, this 22-year-old from University of Cincinnati with a psych degree, and I was intimidated beyond belief, beyond belief. Yeah. So I definitely want to talk about a little bit of that, that mindset 
as you're going into it. But first, one, I just want to say that what a what a fantastic story of yeah, there's there's a humanizing element, I think, of if you are pinching a leader's fat, that they go from being this intimidating person to now they're a human again, right? So it gave you this opportunity to connect at this this human level and that this was something that Tom could then say, hey, I think you would be good at this. And so I'm just curious from, as before we talk about some of the other stuff, is that something that you try to do now? That does seem like a great gift, like you said, to if people are floundering, not even necessarily floundering. I imagine that you're probably really good at at that job, but is that something that you look to do now to see, oh, this person could, there's so many opportunities that they could do well at, maybe at least let me introduce them to them. Absolutely. I think that that whole experience and my whole background manifested itself in many, many ways. I mean, the first way is humility. When you go to Harvard or Stanford Business School and you spend $100,000 on an MBA, you expect to be in those places. I mean, it's very competitive. There's alumni trackers and alumni newsletters and you see where your friends are and it's like, it's like a big horse race. I mean, I used to watch all these these folks with, from the top B schools and I worked with in the US. I mean, it was like, they were in competition and it was very competitive. I was a psych degree from University of Cincinnati. Nobody had ever gone to brand management before. Nobody, it wasn't even on the radar screen. So I never forget to this day, I never forget my roots. I still will mop the floor and clean the bathrooms and do the dirty work that has to be done in the company because I don't have this attitude of, well, that's below me or I'm the CEO. I've never lost my humility and I've stayed very humble. The second is taking the time to help younger people and help people and give advice and counsel. I mean, Tram and I still talk. I mean, Tom is in his late 70s now, long retired, living in Cincinnati. I mean, I talked to him a couple of weeks ago. I owe him everything. I've always thanked him. I say, I owe you so much. I mean, none of these doors wouldn't have opened without him. And I think we all have an obligation to that those of us that live in the penthouse have an obligation to send the elevator back down. And I'm now in the penthouse proverbially, and I have an obligation to send that elevator down for as many people as possible. And it can be helping someone I know, helping someone I don't know, giving people a chance in life, discrimination, whether they're a person of determination or they're an unemployed South African person who's in Dubai and not being given an opportunity. I have an obligation to help them. And the third way that it really helps me is, is to never judge people on where their background roots. And I think in, I'll venture to say this, I think there's no one in PNG ever who promoted as many secretaries into management as me. <laughs> Today, there's a marketing director in Europe, Ada Harazimovic, who was my secretary in Poland. And there's multiple secretaries who are band three, band four, band five, who all work for me as secretaries. And there are people in P&G and in any company who they judge you based upon where you're at. And well, I was a fitness instructor. I was a contract employee at $5 an hour. And I was below the secretaries. And I know what it feels like. And I don't judge people based upon where they start. This is a long race. It's a marathon. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. And so I just told my secretary in FHH just in the last two days, she's been working hard for me for two years. It's done an outstanding job. I told her, I don't like to say this because I'm going to lose you, but you know what? You're too good to work for me. And it's time that you go on to a bigger job than a secretary. And she's all happy and smiling and giggling. And But 
that's a great coach for me. Taking a Michael Jordan and winning is not that impressive. It's taking someone who is not Michael Jordan and making them into a Michael Jordan. And my pride is not these superstar MBAs who work for me who were already brilliant when they stepped in the door. It's the, it's the secretary who became a world-class marketing manager. Those are the people that I'm proud of because that's the great coaches as they take raw talent and they mold it into something fabulous. Yeah, which I think is, is such a fantastic mindset and something that I think a lot of us can learn from is that style is like, yeah, not holding on to the history, but seeing the work that people do and, and supporting them in that. And because you, as you mentioned, but I, I'm curious, going back to this story of writing this letter to the interview board, right? Part of it's that tenaciousness, part of it is that, that skill set that you talked about. Do you remember the mindset at 21 slash 22 to be like, hey, billion dollar company who rejected like me, who said no, and they say, you're wrong. What was the like, was it something that you kind of consciously thought about? Should I send this or not? Was it just kind of a nope gut reaction that you you sent that? To me, it's like, I don't know that I would I would necessarily have the courage or even think to the, the thought process to send a letter like that. Well, first of all, I mean, I don't remember exactly everything, but I can say this. What worse is going to happen? P&G already told me we don't want you. I mean, what are they going to do next? Sue me? I mean, it, they already said we reject you and we don't want you. And it was very nice about it. It was all have a nice life and we wish you the best in your future endeavors. All those nice cliched phrases. But they had already told me to go to go away. So bothering them wasn't going to impact anything. Secondly, I was always raised that you can fight anything. And my mother grew up on a farm and she had these wonderful farm sayings. And one of them that she said was, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And that's been with me my whole life. The squeaky wheel gets grease, which is you got to fight. If you don't squeak, no one will give you oil if you're a wheel. And so you got to squeak. And so I became a persistent nag on things. And and for me, there was the biggest learning and how I interview to this day is, is on simple. I can teach almost everything you need to be successful in a job. I can teach you how to throw a shot put or a discus or how to run fast. I can teach you how to write memos and how to give presentation. All this stuff's teachable. I, I don't interview on that. There's only one thing in life that you can't teach and it's the most important thing of all. And that's desire. I can't coach desire. That's got to come from within. And if you've got desire, I can work with that because I I can work with other things. And I look at my best salespeople ever in my career. These weren't the most smartest people in the world. They weren't, they weren't nuclear physicists and they weren't this, but you know what? They never give up and they just fight. And that's what you need. And when I interview people, I only interview on desire. I don't care about diplomas and I certainly don't care who your daddy is. I've got these people all the time, especially in this part of the world. They send me an email of intro and they're they're attaching pictures of all the famous people they've met. I don't give it. I mean, if you if you have to base your life on who your daddy is, you are really in I'm not the right boss. I because I don't care. My father was dead when I was twenty-two years old. And I was on my own. I couldn't live off my father. And I, I don't have any respect for that. And so it's all about desire. And that's the big learning of my story is, is that I didn't stop. And to this day, there's many people, I can name them in Proctor, who knew that story, who got turned down in screening interviews and who wrote me a letter. And they would say, dear Mr. Lafferty, I've heard your story. I think I'm the same. I want it bad. I love your company. I want to work there. And I got turned down. Every time I got a letter like that, I went to HR and I said, you bring them back. Because you know what? They may not be the, the smartest kid in school, but they've got guts and they got desire. And that's enough. And 
I can count 10, 20, 30 senior people in P&G who were turned down on the first interviews who wrote me letters like that, and we brought them in. Now, not always. Sometimes we'd re-interview and still say no, but you can't coach that stuff. Most people just quit and give up and say, okay, HR said no. Forget it. I don't like them. I'm never going to buy Pantene again. You know, they get you know, they get yeah. upset and they go and they walk away. It's the people that fight back that you love. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for desire. Well, and I think that's such a great articulation of that fact. Like you said, there's a lot that can be learned, but that you can't you can't coach that desire. And my first week on the job at PNG, my manager told me it's better to beg for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. And that was a huge change for me of like, that gave me a lot of confidence in the organization to do things like proclaim myself corporate humorous, et cetera. And so it's that, that willingness to kind of be like, I'm not going to wait for someone to say, quote unquote, give me this opportunity or this chance or say, do this thing, but to reach out just like the letter was, no one was like, and if you disagree, send us a letter. You're like, nope, I'm going to send it. And one of the things that you mentioned is you can certainly teach things like writing. And that's actually how I, I came to know certainly your work with NPNG was as I was building kind of my first blog internally, I remember seeing a bunch of the the writing. And you know, I remember the prolific writing you had, including the infamous kind of swimmers versus water walkers and the other memos that you had created. So a couple of questions around that. The first, just for kind of the maybe non-PNG audience, people who haven't read it, what is a swimmer versus a water walker? It's funny on that memo, it went all over the place. And I even went to companies like Intuit, where the chairman invited me in on that memo because he was, it was Scott Cook. He was also on the P&G board. And I never wrote that to, like, to be circulated. I wrote it to a specific group of people on my team because here's the problem in a P&G, and it's a good problem. Everybody coming in there is a star. I mean, everybody was not like I was number one in my college class. Everybody was number one in their class. Yeah. <laughs> so you get in and you've had a life of I'm always the best. And then you're in the PNG world, which is now the best of the best of the best. And at some point, as the as the pyramid narrows, you you may not always be the best. And so I would sit with sometimes with people and say, You're borderline three rated, you're not really doing well. And they and and they were like in this state of shock. Of like, and sometimes they would say, I've never been anything but the best my whole life. And I would be, well, welcome to the cold shower. <laughs> you know, sorry about that. But in this world, everybody was top dog. Everybody was honor roll and dean's list and, and national honor society and, and student of the year. Everybody won this stuff. Now you're in a game where it's a bunch of peers fighting. And now that it becomes slicing and dicing with a with a razor blade and you know what in this world you're not the best now you can maybe be the best you got to do x and y and so having had this discussion multiple times i reflected and i said here's the thing with png everybody who comes in here can swim they're already great swimmers the whole company is great swimmers now the question is is how do you become a water walker which are the truly exceptional and here are the differences that separate the swimmer and the water walker. And by putting it that way, the important thing with feedback is that people swallow the medicine. If people don't swallow the medicine, if they spit the pill out, they don't accept the feedback. And so the technique of swimmer versus water walker, what was smart about it wasn't that it came up with these fun phrases. It was that it enabled people who are their ego is bruised to swallow the medicine because they say, oh, I get it we're all really good. I'm still really good. I'm just 
at the bottom of the very good. It reframed it in a way that they could swallow. Because sometimes when you would sit and tell these people, look, you're rated three and they're fighting you, telling them, well, that's the way it is. You're three rated. They don't swallow the medicine. And so they don't believe you. And so they don't improve. And then we end up firing them. I wanted to save them. I wanted them to improve. And, and for anyone to improve, they must first acknowledge reality. And it's, it's just like Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, the, the step one of AA is you must admit you're an alcoholic. If you don't do that, they don't move you to step two. The step one of improvement is you have to say, I have to get better. If you don't say that, you're dead. There's nothing. Coaching goes in your ear and out the other ear. Coaching, just you, you ignore it. And so the swimmer versus water walker technique was just simply a way to frame it in this hyper-competitive P&G world where everybody's good. I mean, the people that P&G have fired have gone on to be CEOs all over the place. It's, it, I mean, look at, look at the list. I mean, Steve Case at AOL, I mean, he wasn't like a superstar ABM. But then he goes out and becomes a billionaire doing this. And, and you have to ask yourself the question, did P&G make a mistake on those separations? Maybe. On some, they did. And two, maybe it's a question of the, the, those people are really superstars, but they had to find their place. And they had to find the culture because Proctor is a very unique, somewhat insular culture that it's not always welcoming. I mean, I can remember all the Gillette people. I mean, how many Gillette originals are left? How many Wella original? I mean, it's not a company that tends on these. If you look at the big mergers, there's very few, very small percentage of people that remain because the culture is very powerful, very powerful at P&G. And so some of these people had to find where they could really shine and they could find their way and find their footing. But the list of people who have not succeeded at P&G, but then have become amazingly successful outside is a quite huge list. It's a quite massive yeah, well, list. And it's a point of pride. I'm I'm proud at PNG as a former PNG. I'll always be proud of PNG and always have affection for PNG. But it's also it, it is a point of pride in the sense that the, the town is so good that people that aren't so successful PNG can often go outside and have amazing success and be considered global business leaders. Yeah, that they can they can take what they've learned or in some ways didn't learn or whatever. As long as they use it as a as a stepping stone or an opportunity to to change, I think is is great. But what I really like about the metaphor though is like you said it is it makes it more accessible versus hey, you're bad, you need to get good to here's this association or this metaphor, here's this idea to kind of say, No, you're all things considered, you're a swimmer. That's a good thing. So you can you can still have a little bit of pride to say, Oh, I can just get better. So I love the the clarity of that. And it clearly resonated with people because it was one of the first things that I remember reading. It was something that was spread throughout, I imagine it's probably still going throughout the organization. So my qu- second question kind of attached to that because this was advice that you gave me pretty early on, which led me to writing some things that in a much smaller scale also made their way to you know some of the, the C-level suites and stuff like that of, hey, check out what this new hire wrote. But I'm curious, why is writing so important to your leadership style? Why is it something that you, you have felt like, oh, this is a skill leaders should learn? Okay. Well, when I came into P&G, I hated to write and I did everything I could not to write. In my first multiple personnel reviews, written communication was flagged as, a, as an opportunity for improvement, which always shocks people today. And they say, how can that be? You know, you're like, a, you write newspaper columns and you've won awards in journalism. And I say, yeah, it, it, 
this is how you can transform yourself if you want. And then when I came back from sales training, I had a new boss, a guy, a legend in P&G named Daryl Mobley. And I had survived and been promoted from brand assistant to ABM without writing anything, you know, with just <laughs> meetings and running around. And I, I dodged it. And I, I had built this false assumption in my head, which was I can be successful here playing the rules my way. And, you know, my early months with, with Daryl, I wasn't writing stuff. And so I come into his office one day to do my normal stuff. And he said, here's the rule. And he was a former military officer, West Point grad. And he said, here's the rule you're not allowed to talk to me. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he put his hands over his ears and he goes, la, 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 la. I'm not listening to Jim. Get out, get out. And he threw me out of his office and he said, you have to write everything. And for a day or two, I challenged him on this and, and he would just throw me out. And he was, a, you know, and he knew how to be a drill sergeant when he wanted to be. And so I started writing and I went from writing nothing to writing like 40 things a day. And over the period of months, I went from, not such a great writer to a decent writer to a very good writer. And then I started to see that this is such a powerful leadership tool, especially with teams that are dispersed. I mean, and then you look at history and you say, do you remember a great speech you heard? Probably not, but you remember a great book that you read. I mean, writing has much more brain stick stickiness. It sticks in people's brains more than a verbal word. And I started to become a vociferous writer and believed in it and went from good to better to better than better and better. And it became, it transitioned on my personnel reviews over time. By the time I was a senior brand manager, it was suddenly a strength. So something that was a weakness for a couple of years on reviews was now a strength. And then because my writing style was was different, certain memos would take on a life of their own. There was a couple like the swimmers, water walkers, or career perspective I wish someone had given me 15 years ago. There was a couple that like went global and they're still circulated because even on swimmers, water walkers that like a month ago, I got somebody in P&G said, can I have the original? I'm giving it to my team. It's still, and I've been out of P&G for 12 years. So it's still making its dying, I'm sure to some degree, but it's still making its rounds. And then certain documents would make the rounds and get, and it wasn't me sending them around. It was like some, I would send them just, I never sent anything beyond me, my team, but then my team would share it. And then it would get this viral. I mean, swimmers, water walkers just went viral throughout the company. I didn't have nothing. I only sent it to like 40 people and then it went from there. So I learned that writing lasts forever. And if, if you look at our discussion, I remember meeting you in Cincinnati. I think we were even in a bar. There was a P&G thing after the annual meetings and you and I were talking. I remember sitting with you and talking. But if you say, here's how I remember you, Jim, it's, it's a couple of memos. It's not these meaningful one-on-one -on -one conversations. It, it was, it's memo, it, it's writing. And that's the power of writing is that it sticks with you. And I tell people, if your boss sends you, if he gives you a tough dressing down verbally, you'll hear it, you'll listen, you'll reflect on it on the way home, you'll sit in the car and think about it, but you, you can't ever hear it again. You have to replay it. If the boss sends you a tough memo, I bet you read it 30 times. 40 times, 50 times. I bet you keep taking it out and rereading it every couple of days. With that comes learning because of the repetition nature of it. That's how we learn is through repetition. So for me as a coaching tool, it was it became invaluable. And, and I've always had great thanks to Daryl Mobley. 
who was truly a great boss that I didn't understand at the time. He made me do things I didn't want to do. But today, this was 87 to 89. You know, I worked for him. He molded me and I owe him a lot. And we still are close. And we still, he sent me a message the other day on text message. And, and I owe him a lot. There's so many bosses, you know, the Tom Hanley's and Herbert Schmitz and Dimitri Panitopoulos. Nobody makes it anywhere by themselves. And the people that think that are just completely far too narcissistic. I owe these people, the Tom Hanley and the Daryl Mobley and the Mark Weaver and all these people, I owe them so much because they taught me so much. And they took this raw kid and helped turn me into a professional and into a business person. And I, I will always be deeply indebted. And I can only hope that I have the same impact on young people. Certainly, I would say for, for me and my career, it was here, here's a sample size of one to know that you have, because exactly to that point, the writings, one, I think, are something that you go back to. It's a thing that you can say. You can't necessarily relive those, the conversation moment in the bar, but can relive the like, oh, let me go and, and take this lesson. And I think another thing is that I've realized for myself, as my writing has improved, my speaking has improved. Like as someone who's doing a bunch of keynote speaking, the writing actually helps. And and you notice that you, you have such a clear way of, of speaking of my brother teaches public speaking. And so you, you do great at signposting of here's the three things that I learned from that. And that's based off of an improvised question that I gave to you that you're still able to answer in that way. And I imagine part of that comes from having written so much, it's going to improve your other forms of communication as well. Absolutely. I mean, I, the one thing that was always interesting was, is I've never met in, if you go to P&G or Coke or BAT or FHH, great companies I've worked with, if you are a clear thinker, you can write clearly. But if you can't think clearly, you can't write clear. There, the correlation between writing and thinking is a, a tremendous. And so the, there are people who you'd get a memo from them and it was so convoluted and so circular and you couldn't follow it. And that, you know, it was just so difficult and reading it was painful. You almost had to steal yourself <laughs> and say, you got to finish this, but like, Oh my God, I hate it. was how I used to feel sometimes in philosophy class in college. Like, Oh my God, only three pages more of this misery. Do I have to go? <laughs> and when you would meet them and sit in meetings, you realize they can't think clearly. They're just not, their thinking is so muddled. And great thinking, Einstein was right. It's about simplifying. When people say it's just complicated, it's not, nothing is complicated. It, it's about the great thinkers can simplify. And I always laugh. There was a video they showed in P&G back in the 80s. And it was the early days of the Walmart partnership. And they had gone down and cut this deal. And we had decided to start actually sending people to live in the Fayetteville and Bentonville, Arkansas, to be a part of this team. And this was all early days. And many of the people that worked at Walmart, they were from the South and they had that very romantic Southern drawl. And they shot this video of the senior executive. It wasn't Sam Walmart, uh, Sam Walton, but it was right below him. And Sam was still alive at this time. And I'll never forget that video. And they shoot this video of this guy and they, and they showed it at the annual meetings in Cincinnati. And this was in the days when like all the band threes and above were invited to the meeting and it was held in an indoor coliseum in Cincinnati and John Smale and these, these guys were CEO and they bring us in and they play at some point, they get into the discussion about customers and customer having a relationship with a customer and listening. And they play this video and I can still hear this guy. And he's like in his Southern accent, he says, the one thing I got to say about P and G is y'all are just so damn complicated. He said, it, it business ain't complicated. It's simple. He said, here's business. You make a good product. You sell it to me 
at a very good price. I put it on the shelf and I sell it for a good price and I make a bit of money. You make a bit of money. That's it. That's the damn business. And why do you all have to make everything so complicated? The whole arena is erupting in laughter. There's 10,000 people there. It was all the band three and above in Cincinnati, plus the international senior management. We're all cracking up. The guy was right. And it's not complicated. Make a good product price it right, put it on the shelf and sell. Those are really the, yeah, there's more, I understand, but we make things so complex. And so that's one of the great things about writing and about thinking and the linkage is that when you think clearly, you can write clearly. And writing can be used as a screening tool for your best thinkers because people who can take complex ideas and put them down on a one-page memo, this takes skill. And these are the great simplifiers that you need on a business. And now a word from our sponsor. Today, we're talking to P&G alum Ed Tazia, who, beyond being the head of the P&G Alumni Network, is now the Senior Associate for Leadership on Paper. For many of our listeners, that might sound familiar because Leadership on Paper, we'd argue that some of the best training we got at P&G focused on better business through better writing. So Ed, for those who might not be in the know, what exactly makes Leadership on Paper so special and why don't you decide to get involved? Raman, Leadership on Paper has been around for, gosh, over 40 years. And for anyone who's taken the class, they recognize that it's about more than just writing. It's about analytical thinking, thinking that translates to better decisions, better communication, and yes, better writing. Of course, the workshop, which was developed by Gene Plumet, is based on the way Proctor people have been communicating long before there was a formal workshop. Leadership on Paper has grown out of generations of leadership experiences. In fact, in my own personal files, I found a memo written by John Pepper in 1965 entitled, Why We Write, that captures many of the principles we use in Leadership on Paper. That's great. Companies around the world have been using this workshop, often as the result of alumni who've introduced it and believed in it. Companies like Walt Disney, Walmart, McCormick, Levi, Google, Kroger, and yes, Procter & Gamble is still one of our biggest clients. And now in the midst of the pandemic, we've been offering it remotely. Who would you say this training is best for? Well, because it's about analytical thinking, the workshop can benefit all levels of management, all functions, all regions. In fact, we've conducted the class around the world and clients have consistently found it beneficial. I think the best evidence of the quality of this program is that Gene, in all those years, has never really marketed the workshop. His business has been entirely word of mouth. We've done classes with mixed groups, managers and subordinates, as well as dedicated teams. And we now offer a consulting follow-up for interested clients, both in groups and individuals. Leadership on Paper has been around for 40 years. Why do you think it's been so successful for so long, Ed? Well, what's clear over and over again is that people believe in it. And again, it's because it's more than just writing. This isn't your bright, shiny penny, you know, latest consultant come to tell you what to do. It's based on just credentials of history. As a result, people have gone on to other companies, brought it with them. And then people from those companies who aren't even related to Procter have taken it into other places. I've had clients who've told me they still use the workbook they they had 20 years ago and they still keep it active. Yeah, it's actually one of the few pieces of paperwork I have from my time at Procter. That's so true. So folks want to learn more about Leadership on Paper. How can they find out more? Well, the simplest thing is just Google Leadership on Paper. It'll take you to the website and we'd love to have a consultation call. Right now we're booking well, probably six months out. Awesome. Well, Ed, thanks so much for keeping this great work alive and best of luck. Thank you, sir. And now back to our show. As you've gone from certainly a impressive career at P&G just by itself, but then I've also gone into Coca-Cola and to 
FBAT and, and now FHH and also in different regions. Part of what we want to do with talking with people is understanding that thought process. How have you chosen your assignments before? How intentional has it been to be what seems kind of very different, at least regions from that process? But how do you make a choice to say, okay, this is, this is where I want to take my talents and expertise and skill set next? Yeah, I think if you believe in serendipity, then, and I do believe in serendipity, I don't really believe in mapping these things out. I mean, I'll get, so I go back to the concept of serendipity and when they made the offer to go to Morocco. Now, I had asked in 1990 to leave the US and I was adamant. I wanted to get out because I had a boss for the first time that wasn't American and we were sitting talking about the Gulf War, the first Gulf War of 1990. And we were all sitting there and this guy had lived around the world and then we were talking and he just erupts and he says, you Americans, you know, you're just so naive that you think, you think that the world works like this. You have no idea. He said, this city, this city is like the womb of the world. Cincinnati, nothing happens here. This isn't reality. He goes, you know, I've lived in cities where people are starving and fighting for food. You know, you guys know next to nothing. And he just kind of ripped into us. I was 26, 25 and it hit me very hard. And I went home that night and I said, I want to leave. I had I'd been born in Cincinnati. You looked at my life. I had been born there. I went to high school there. I went to university there. And then I went to P&G. My whole life, other than a several months in San Antonio, Texas in sales training, I lived my whole life in Cincinnati. And travel doesn't count. I mean, going on vacation to Cambodia for a few days and, and visiting this and that doesn't count as like having world experience. You got to live in a place. And so I went home and I agree with my family that we're going to go up for an international assignment. Now, this was at a time, and I remember the number, it was under 200 expats worldwide in PNG. And so there was no, this was 1990. And so I get approved and they say, we're going to put you out there. And then I get offered Morocco one day out of nowhere. And so this whole time I won it, and then I get this offer, and I was hoping for what many Americans did is they got Mexico because it was kind of like the first baby step. So I'm going to leave Cincinnati. I'm so scared. I'll go to Toronto or I'll go to Mexico City. At least I'm still a three-hour flight from home kind of thing. I was thinking I would get most Americans went to Latin America or to Canada. A few went to Europe. I was hoping. And I went to Morocco, and, and, and this is a typical American story. My first wife... I come home and I say, they've offered us Morocco. You know what she said? She said, that's exciting. I've never been to South America. I mean, that's the classic American, I don't know anything about geography. So we, we go on this look-see visit to Morocco and I am terrified. I admit it. I'm scared to death, Andrew. There's like sheep everywhere and call to prayer and Islam and it's such a different place and nobody speaks English and it's all French and, and then Moroccan Arabic and... I'm blown away and I'm so cultural in a state of culture shock. I can't even imagine. And my high school French is not really carrying me. And all the way back, we, we flew back to Cincinnati. There was a Delta direct flights. I flew Air France from Casablanca to Paris. I'm in Orly Airport and I'm making the change in Orly to go to Cincinnati. I cried in that airport. I cried and I'll tell you why I cried. I was scared to death. And so I landed back in Cincinnati and I made a decision. I'm going to turn the job down. And there's only one way to turn down a job in PNG when you've been offered it. You can't say, 
I don't like the country or I don't like the business or it's too small. That's insulting. You're dead. If you go and you say the job's not challenging enough, they will, the receiving organization will say, screw this guy and you're dead. So the only way you can turn down an expat assignment in P&G is you have to blame your wife. That's the only way to do it. So you blame your wife. So what did I do? I'm all prepared. I love the job. I love the country, blah, 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 blah. But my wife's nervous and her mother's alone. And you make it a family thing because P&G is always smart. They know on family issues, you got to shut up. You can't argue with someone what's in the best interest of their family. So you have to shut up. So when you make it a family matter, you win. And I'm ready to do that. And there's this old guy in CBD and food service and lodging. And he knew that I had been on a look-see. It was secret from my ABMs, but he knew. Right when I'm going to call. I mean, this is serendipity, Andrew. This is how life plays out. (laughs) This guy comes by my office. He's almost in a walker. And he comes by and he says, hey, I heard they offered you Africa. And I start giving him the, yeah, yeah, it's exciting, but I think I'm going to turn it down. And he looked at me and said, you look at me. Look at me. I'm 64 years old. Do you know what I regret in my life? I regret all the risks I didn't take. You're how old? And I said, I'm 27. He said, you don't say no to Africa. You turn this down, you'll regret it the rest of your life. Don't you dare do this. And I literally called home to my wife and I said, I think I'm going to take it. And she said, I'll do what you think is right. He changed my mind. And I picked up the phone. I called this guy named Heinz, Heinz Cranbuehl, who was a general manager of P&G Morocco. And I said, Mr. Cranbuehl, I'm coming. He said, great. And I hung up the phone and my entire life swung on a visit from a 64-year-old sales guy <laughs> and on a moment. And he, and he gave me that advice. And after that, I went there and, I, and P&G US gave me this interesting piece of paper. It was a guaranteed return. And they said, length of assignment, I'll never forget. It said two to three years. And then it said, you are guaranteed a return as brand manager to the United States business at the end of the assignment. So P&G really does a good job. I mean, they send you out and they give you a return ticket at that time. And I remember looking at my boss on the two to three, and I said, think two, not three. (laughs) Think two, not three. That was in 1990. I have never returned it. We are in 2021, 31 years later, I've never gone back to the US. So what was a two-year assignment has been a 31-year. Everything changed. I get over there, and my first visit home to Cincinnati was in month six, because a friend of mine was getting married and I was best man at the wedding. And so I flew back and I brought my youngest daughter with me and she was like two. I bring her with me. And when we rounded the corner in Cincinnati, everybody knows the cut in the hill coming from the airport and you see the city. I was in the back of a taxi. We rounded the corner and I saw the skyline of my beloved Cincinnati open up and I started crying in the back seat of the car. And I was so emotional. And I spent a week in Cincinnati. It was my first time back and meeting all my friends. And it was nothing but get-togethers with people and from P&G and my high school and college and all that. When I went back, it was so hard to get on that plane to go back to Casablanca. And then at 12 months, I barely got on the plane at Christmas because it was so hard to go back after the Christmas holidays with family. And then it was weird. At month 18, I started looking forward to going home to Casablanca. And I realized it was becoming home. And then at two years and three or four... I stayed five years there. It became totally my home. I fell in love with the country, the people, the culture, everything about it. And when P&G came to me and said, we like you in Europe, we'd like you to go to Poland. Are you, you can go home if you want, but we'd like you to stay over in Europe. I said, absolutely. And that was the start. And what I basically did was, is I took every assignment they offered and I never, I never overthought 
I never put a lot of thought in stuff. I always thought you can learn from any assignment. I mean, when I went to Morocco, all the Cincinnati people laughed at me because my P&L in Cincinnati as a brand manager was $47 million dopat. And the Moroccan subsidiary was a $1 million dopat. And I remember everyone laughing at me. What did you do wrong to get such a – you're a brand manager in a company that only makes a million dollars. But you look at that whole team that went there, Dominique Lacaz in sales, Laurent Philippe, the, the general manager, Andre Sidoui in finance, Jamel Baradi in HR. The entire management team of P&G Morocco was promoted because we took it from 1 million to 20 million. And I learned something. This whole thing of you have to keep going to a bigger assignment. You have to put all this thought. I tell people, don't overthink life so much. When Proctor asked me to go to Poland, the guy I was replacing was going back to the US. And I said, why are you going back to the U.S.? And he sounded so intelligent. He says to me, I started in the U.S. and now I've done a developing market. And I think the right thing for my career now is to put developed back on the CV. So I told the company I only wanted U.S. or Japan because I, I want to be developed. And he said, I think I need to round out my resume and do that. And I, I sat there and I hung up the phone call with him. And I thought, damn, I never think about that stuff. And for a moment, I was scared. I was like, I'm not very smart at this career planning thing where I've got to, I, I should be plotting all these moves like this. And he told me, he said, look, look at you. You're going from Morocco to now Poland. You're going to be branded as a developing market guy and nobody will want you anymore in like the developed world and blah, blah, blah. And it scared the crap out of me. And I, I sat for like a day or two and I reflected. And then I went and then over time I learned this, it's all BS. Yeah, he didn't survive in PNG. It didn't work out. I went on and got promoted to, to four different general manager assignments. And being noted as a guy who can work in developing markets became one of the most powerful things on my CV <laughs> because the whole world now is focused on the emerging markets. And so I'm still, I'm, in, I'm almost 60 years old and I still get a steady stream of phone calls to run companies in the emerging world. And it's because of the history and the experiences. And so, yeah, I didn't play this sit down and map it out and do all that stuff. And I think a lot of people overthink it. Just take the assignment that you love and do a damn good job on it. And the headhunters will come banging on your door. I mean, that, for me, that's the advice. It just do the freaking job and nail it and kick ass and make a name for yourself. And the, the headhunters will figure you out. They'll be calling you like crazy. You don't have to worry about stuff. You don't have to worry about things. And, and like the, I've got a people that are obsessed with, with managing their CV the typical thing I observe with them is, is their average and their average. And so they use CV management as a means to overcome the fact that they don't really deliver. And the great people, they just take the damn job and they win. And when you win, yeah. everybody comes to your door. For sure. When I look back on the jobs I've taken, Nigeria, Coke and BAT Philippines, which was like a re-entry, these were stupid to take because they were, they were set up to fail. But if you succeed... And that's what I did. You succeed. You become a star. Take the tough stuff. Take the nasty assignments. Take the, take the loser jobs. I mean, nobody wanted – when I took family care in Western Europe and Proctor, no GM had ever done more than 18 months in assignment. They were all fired or left. Even David Taylor, who I replaced, he was 18 months in the position. He did a great job, but he was 18 months. I did three years and was the first guy to make a profit. That's, that's your legacy. You say – I survived it, and I also turned it profitable, something no one had ever done. No one had ever made money, 
in Western Europe family care until that team, the team of 2003, 2004, that team made the first profit in the history of the business. And, and yeah, it was not the most, when I got the job, people call me, oh man, you're in a real tough spot and nobody survives that job. It's such a disaster. And they had, we had lost a half a billion dollars cumulatively in 10 years. It was nothing but a disaster. And you say, the great people take that and they, they relish it. They say, give me the worst job. I, I want to show I can do it. I don't want the cushy. I never wanted Pampers. I mean, who wants to work on Pampers? Every, everybody in the company had worked on Pampers. Everybody niggles your advertising. Everybody's involved in your pack. You don't have a minute free. I loved family care because the business was so bad that everybody left you alone. And it was beautiful. It was like, look, we've never made any money. Try what you want. And that's what we did, as opposed to being put on a big mainstream brand. I mean, but there are people that care about that. They care about going to a party and telling their friends, I'm the Pampers brand manager. I've got the biggest brand manager job in Western Europe. I never cared about that stuff. I never cared. I used to relish it. When people would ask me, what do you do for a living? I'd say, I sell toilet paper. That's what, to this day, that's my answer. What do I do? I sell toilet paper. Somebody's got to do it. And look at what happens mm-hmm. when there's a pandemic. What's the first product everybody buys? Toilet paper. There's a panic. They weren't panic buying chicken. They weren't panic buying Tide. They were panic buying toilet paper. Because when you get right down to it, that, that's pretty important stuff. And, and as I've told a lot of people who laugh about toilet paper, I said, well, I can tell you one thing. You've never lived your life until you've been in a focus group on toilet paper. <laughs> it's the most beautiful focus group, the most interesting thing. When you dig into the nuances of why people, what's the definition of strength? And people say, I want a strong toilet paper. And then people go, what, what does that mean? So I will go back and say that all the focus groups I've been in, the two most interesting categories was toilet tissue and feminine protection. Do you really understand the psychology of human beings? You sit in those group laundry, it's not nearly as interesting. Yeah. And it's interesting because those are, in some ways, those intimate moments like you using the calipers to measure someone's body fat or whatever. Like it's those intimate kind of moments that are still universal in a way that we don't necessarily talk about. But I think in general, I just want to call out, I think that's fantastic advice, what you shared of that idea of take the job that you love or are interested in, and then just do really well with it. Like that's good career advancement that you excel in the the positions that you're, you're put in. And so as we start to start to wrap up a little bit, I want to, I want to cover some of the other stuff that you have done there's certainly success at each of these spots that you've gone to, certainly now at FHH as well. But in addition to being a CEO and a consultant, you have also taught at various universities, have had columns in various publications, were coach for some Filipino Olympic athletes in Rio 2016. You were the 2017 Philippines national champion in powerlifting. How do you manage to do that plus lead a successful company. Do you not sleep? Do you have a like cryogenic chamber or something like that? How do you balance those things? Thank you for that. I think there's a couple of things. One is, is that a lot of people try to do, I'm a big believer in the five role theory of life, which is everybody, if you look at Western research and the number of roles that we all have, the average is 22. An example of a role is, is role one is I'm a father, role two, I'm a husband, role three, I'm a business person, role four, I'm a cousin, role five, I'm a brother. You go on, the average is 22. It doesn't matter whether you have 22 or 19 or 30. Here's what matters. You can only do five well. That's it. You can only do five. And what I do is, look, I've got my five roles down that I do. 
and I know exactly what they are. And they are husband, father, CEO, personal fitness and coach and philanthropist. That's it. So you say, well, wait a minute. I didn't hear brother. I am a brother. I got still surviving four brothers and sisters. I'm not a really great brother. I talk to them and we have Zoom calls and stuff, but I don't make it home for every wedding. I don't make it home for every funeral. I don't spend hours a day being a good brother. I'm not a really great uncle to a lot of my nephews and nieces. I'm there for them. I talk to them on email. When they have a crisis, I don't jump on a plane and go home for everything. I can't do it. And so I do those five things well. And I'm incredibly focused when I get it. So my day is doing my job, being a great husband to my wife, being a father to my children, finding time to exercise six or seven days a week, and then working with my athletes. So for me, it's philanthropy, you know, helping the Philippines, a country that I adore and I love. And the correlation between athletic success and country image has been well documented. And China has used athletic prowess to, to build an economy and to build national pride. And the Philippines is the largest nation in the world with Bangladesh as in terms of never winning an Olympic gold medal. There's 106 million Filipinos and they've never won an Olympic gold. That is a huge millstone that hangs around their neck and everyone talks about it. I can play a role in helping that country shed that shadow and I want to help them. And the athlete I'm working with now, you know, EJ OBN and pole vault, my wife is his nutritionist and I work with him on other stuff. He's got a real shot to win gold in Tokyo and, and that will help the country and help this wonderful young man. So that's part of a philanthropy in, in a sense of helping the, the nation. That's all I do. Sleep because I take good care of myself. I'm able to sleep five to six hours a night and wake up completely refreshed. I take no caffeine in my life ever. And I wake up and I'm ready to run. I'm ready to do whatever. And, and I take good care of myself. So there's no real magic there. It's about focus and it's about I make decisions quickly and it's about taking good care of yourself. Because if you don't physically manage your body, then all of your efficiency is gone. I mean, it's, it's completely gone. You got to be healthy. And, and that starts with taking care of yourself. Well, and I think it's another example of how helpful simplification can be because those five roles, one, it's something that Julie Sutherland, who we've had on the podcast, she's a VP and commercial head at Estee Lauder now. She called you out specifically. That was, I learned this from Jim Lafferty. It's amazing. It's, it's something that she does, the five roles. It's something that I took with me from P&G as well of to the point that I track habits against those five roles. Of, am I doing something? How many, how frequently in terms of a year, how many days out of the year did I do what I think of those, my kind of core five roles now? So I love the, like you said earlier before, like clarifying and simplifying an idea that so people can resonate that with that. They can count on one hand then, okay, like which are my roles and can be reminded of that important. So I, I love that as a as a way to to focus on on the things that are that are most important to you. And so as we start to wrap up, because I want to be respectful of your your time, the last question I have just for you is one, we have a couple of quick rapid fire questions just to get to know a little bit more about you. So kind of in one word or one or a couple of words. So you are a speaker. What's your favorite topic to present or to share with others? Leadership. Love it. And what is your form of relief or catharsis or kind of taking a break from work? Is it books, movies, working out, TV shows, something else? Weight room. Weight room. Love it. And you've certainly been a guest on a number of podcasts, but if you were a podcast host and could interview one person, who would it be? 
if I assume it could be anyone even alive or not alive, it would be Mandela. Okay. Excellent. Excellent answer. And last question, you can certainly use more than one word to answer this. Any final piece of advice or wisdom that you would give to the next generation of leaders? I think I always used to tell people and my students in leadership class, if you read the newspapers, you learn a lot about leadership. And I think in today's newspaper, there's plenty to learn about leadership, about what happened in Washington, D.C., and about people taking the stand of either righteousness or of political expediency. And I, I think the great leaders in, in throughout history have always been renowned for doing the right thing and for putting themselves after the benefit of others. And we will see in these situations how history treats all of the, the, the various players in, the, in this current situation and how they look at it. And my prediction will be that history will be very kind to the people who have put others before themselves and have put righteousness and principle above their own personal gain. And it'll take time, but, but that's how it comes out. And if you look at the great leaders in history that we put on iconic pedestals, it's people who have stood for principle. And I have tried as a leader to do the right thing and to stand up for principle and, and not cover my ass and not throw other people under the bus so I could survive. And that's cost me a great deal of hardship at certain points in time, because as, as we say, a principle is not a principle until it costs you something. And until it costs you something, it's just nothing but conjecture and talk. So I would tell any leader at any point in time, be very clear on your principles. And if you take the principle of doing the right thing as truly a principle you're going to live by, you're going to be an amazing leader, but you're also going to pay an enormous price. And for some people, that price has been for a Gandhi and for others has been, they've been killed. They paid with their life for that principle. But that's why we also elevate these individuals to such iconic status is because they, they held from their principle. I mean, take a Mandela. The people in prison, him came to him and said, if you sign these confessions, we let you go and you can go see your family. Now, if your principle is I'm going to do the right thing, you say, I'm not going to sign. I'm not admitting I did anything wrong. If your principle is, I just care about myself and I want to get back to my wife and kids, you sign. He said no. And he spent 22 years locked up on Robben Island away from his, his children grew up without him. His wife and he became, you know, did, became strangers because he didn't see her for 22 years. Think of the price he paid for that principle. But on the other hand, if he had signed the papers and left, we wouldn't even know his name today. He would have never been an icon in South Africa or an, an icon of anti apartheid resistance or an icon of freedom and inequality. He would have just been another former prisoner on Robben Island that signed some papers and got out and went home. <laughs> so these are the things that I think all leaders, young or old or less experienced or more experienced, have to internalize. You have to be very, very clear on your principles because you're going to be confronted with decisions. You're going to be confronted with there are many principles on a business. Principle one, make your numbers. Principle two, do the right thing. So what, what do you do when you're confronted with a, an opportunity to tax cheat to make your number? <laughs> These are the moral dilemmas. And you say, okay, do I cheat and make my number? And do I, this is how all these things like Enron happen is that people are, they're not clear on their principles. If you do the right thing, you're going to have to take the bullet and you're going to have to get fired from missing. 
But if you follow the other one, then there's a, but no matter what, there's a price. If you say, I'm going to cheat on the books and make the number, then you might go to jail. There's no getting out of this stuff. And, and so that's the important thing that every leader has to bear in mind, which is a principle is not a principle until it costs you something. Yeah. Fantastic advice. Well, Jim, this has been such an incredible opportunity to hear kind of some of your story, to hear some wisdom, to hear some great insights, to laugh a little bit as well. So thank you so much for joining us on Learnings with Leaders. Well, thank you, Andrew, for having me. And that's our show. Like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at PGAlumPod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit PGAlums.com. Now, here's a preview of next week's episode. I think one of the reasons we don't say yes and is we're fearful of where the and takes us. The yes and is critical because it takes us down new paths. Even if it's a dead end, it means that's not the right one. Or even if it ends with you falling down, it means now I know how it feels to fall and let me avoid those paths in the future. It is a kind of courage. And I think once we start accepting the yes and paths, we gain courage. We may not have it to begin with, but we find over time like falling doesn't hurt that much. And failure only really does allow us to begin again more intelligently. That's it for this week. I've been Andrew Tarvin. And I'm still Roman Segel. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.